0: Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'll read to you verses 11 through 15. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Amen and amen. Amen. I trust that with what we've done already in the worship this morning, that you are wanting to worship the God of heaven, that you are thankful for what he has done for us and given us. And I hope that we can increase that yet more in our time together. Let me remind you of a simple outline of this chapter. I like breaking chapters into parts. So that I can get my simple mind around what is contained here in these 36 verses. The first six verses, God describes his elect remnant within the nation of Israel. And we have covered that already. In verses seven through 10, he describes what he has done to those that were not elect. They are the rest and he has blinded them perpetually with full blindness to the gospel. In verses 11 through 15, It is elect Israel that is stumbling over the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel for a wise purpose by the design of God, and that is that the gospel would come to you and me. It would come to Gentiles. In verses 16 through 24, we have the lesson of the olive tree, that the kingdom of God, gospel and church privileges, is the olive tree there, the nation of Israel, the tabernacle of David, how, whatever terms you want to use to describe it, they're all encompassed under this olive tree. Some of the branches were broken off. Natural branches of the Jews lost their kingdom privileges and were enemies of the son of David, even though their ancestors had been lovers of David. Right. Instead, Gentiles are brought into that kingdom. They're grafted in, wild branches. People that had no ancestry at all related to the worship of the Lord God, Jehovah. They're brought in. So verses 16 through 24 is the lesson of the olive tree. If the Gentiles aren't careful, they can be broken off. And the Jews can be grafted in again if God grants them repentance and when he grants them repentance. Verses 25 through 29 are that some elect Israelites were blinded to the gospel. And it's more specifically stated here than it is back in verses 11 through 15. Verses 30 through 32, God has left Gentiles blind at times, and now He's leaving Jews blind at times, that the end result would be all would obtain the mercy of God. And in light of all that took place here in this chapter and all that took place before it, the apostle in verses 33 through 36 has ejaculatory praise of God and glorifies Him and worships Him for the wisdom of His so great salvation and the wisdom of His sovereign judgment of Gentiles and Jews with the resulting effect being they're all going to be saved by the mercy of God. And to God belongs all the glory. And the chapter ends with an amen before we enter the practical application of chapters 12 through 16. That's a simple outline of the chapter. This is what Gentiles should learn from Romans chapter 11. And I'm not going to mention a class of unconverted elect. That is a very small part of what they should learn. That is not the driving influence of the apostle. Here's what he wants us to learn. He first of all wants us to learn humility. That we have been granted a privilege that we didn't deserve and had no right to. It's in verse 18. Boast not against the branches. So it's humility the apostle wants us to learn. It's in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. The way things have turned out for you to get the gospel is something that you should be very humble about. So the first thing we want to learn from Romans 11 is humility. That we have these gospel privileges. It is not by our merit. It is by God's mercy toward unbelieving Gentiles. The second thing is fear. That we can lose these privileges if we don't take advantage of them and exploit them to the glory of God. This is in verses 20 through 22. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. So I want you to notice that the second lesson is fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity... But toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Right. So it's fear. We want to tremble before this God that is so good and so severe, and we want to take advantage of every gospel privilege he's given us to give him all the service and the fruits and the praise and the worship and obedience that he wants from us Gentiles. The third object of the apostle is that we would have the same evangelistic desire for God's unconverted elect that he had. This is seen in verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. This follows upon the interjection in verse 13 of a most unusual statement where he appeals to his apostleship to the Gentiles and he says, I speak to you Gentiles. He specifically narrows down his audience, because the Roman church had both, but he specifically narrows it down to the Gentiles to tell them, I'm appealing to you so that you'll be humble as you hear this news about the Jews, that you'll fear as you hear this news about the Jews, and that you might have some of my ambition for their salvation. Because that's what's wrapped around verse 13. And that's what's stated in verse 14. If by any means... I might save some of them. And then look at verses 30 through 32. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. And so there is mercy that these Gentiles converted in this transitional generation could show toward the Jews and the apostle appeared toward that. Then there's the point of thanksgiving. And the whole chapter should bring thanksgiving because the final four verses are just blessing God for His incredible wisdom because who has ever given to God and put a debt on the Lord that the Lord owes something back? It is all of grace and His, inf- his wisdom is infinite. And so we should be thankful in the spirit of 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and here we go again. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That we believe the truth is resulting from God's sanctifying of our spirits in regeneration, and that is the result of Him choosing us from the beginning. And if you read Acts 15 last night, the tabernacle of David is being built up with Gentiles, and known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world, or the beginning of the world, in Acts 15. So this is not some change that God has made as He reflected on what the Jews were doing to Him. This is all by design. Because everything that happens in this universe is by His design. So let's... Let's uh, have humility today. Let's have fear. Let's see if we have evangelistic fervor like he did. And let's be thankful. Amen. And there are other little details in here that we can learn. All sorts of little details. But that's what the apostle is driving at. And he lets us know in those passages I just shared with you. Verse 11. I say then. Paul inserts another rhetorical conclusion question here. Based on what he had written in those first ten verses. Having divided Israel between elect and reprobates, what was the situation with elect Israelites? Since he had described what the situation was with non-elect Israelites, they're the rest, they've been passed over, they have not obtained that which they sought for, and they have been permanently and finally and fully blinded. What's the case with the elect Israelites? And we start up, and that is the antecedent for the four pronouns in verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? referring back to the elect. And we have to make that choice, as I explained last Lord's Day, by the rest of this chapter, because everything from verse 11 on is dealing with elect Israelites. You can't avoid it. They can be saved. They're holy, verse 16. They can be grafted back in. They are elect, in verse 28, for the Father's sakes. They're all going to be saved, verse 26. These are elect, and so we're forced to make a division that many don't make because they read the Bible too superficially, and so they end up in false doctrine. I say then, have they stumbled? Have these elect Israelites stumbled? They have stumbled. But they haven't stumbled with the permanent, final, complete blinding of those non-elect Israelites that verses 8 through 10 describe. They have stumbled temporarily. They have stumbled partially. They can still be recovered by the means of a man like Paul. So it's a gospel stumbling that is not final and it's not complete. It's temporary. Some will die under it, but that's no different than Corinthians dying under the chastening hand of God and still being in heaven in First Corinthians chapter 11 verses 28 through 30. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Here is where we divide the sense of another word. Because here's a fall that isn't really a fall. Because as Paul asks the question in the first pass, have they stumbled that they should fall? His answer to that is, God forbid. They haven't fallen like the non-elect Israelites. They've only fallen in this temporary, partial way that I have described and I will describe. God forbid. They haven't fallen that way. They haven't fallen out of God's eternal plan for them. They haven't fallen out of the book of life. They've only fallen from some gospel privileges because they have stumbled at that stumbling stone, which is Christ Jesus. There are differences between the stumbling blindness on the reprobate rest and the stumbling blindness and falling here. The Apostle Paul was one of those that stumbled over Jesus Christ. He told Agrippa, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things, contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. But then what did He do when He met Jesus of Nazareth? Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? And what did He do the rest of His life? But serve that Lord Jesus Christ. And He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about that whole uh, conversion experience and the conversion event, I obtained mercy because I did it in unbelief and ignorance. Because God... That's what God was doing in this generation. And so God was merciful to him because God had left him blind. He just couldn't see that Jesus of Nazareth was truly God's Messiah and the Son of God. God forbid, but rather through their fall. Oh, this is so good. But rather, instead of them falling out of the book of life, instead of them falling from God's grace, instead of them falling just because God wanted to punish His people, His elect people, There's more to it than that. It's not just judicial or divine punishment of these elect Israelites. He has a design in the matter. And it's this design that brings about the praise in the last four verses of the chapter. It's incredible design. The Gentiles are the unbelievers, and how do we get some unbelievers converted? By sending them some preachers with some beautiful feet that will let them hear so that they can understand and so they can believe and so they can call upon the name of the Lord. Now how are we going to get Jewish preachers to go to Gentiles? We're going to blind some of those Jews so that they'll get irritated with their own people and turn to the Gentiles. And they did just that as the book of Acts explains, especially chapters 13 and 28. But rather, meaning this isn't a fall of just judgment. This is a fall by design. It's short and it has a profitable end result for Gentiles. But rather, through their fall, their stumbling over Christ, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. And this salvation is gospel salvation. This isn't their names being written in the book of life. This isn't Jesus Christ dying for them. This isn't regeneration. All those things are settled in the eternal counsels of God. This is gospel salvation. And as we progress, what is going to be described is gospel salvation, the practical phase of salvation. Converting, having a local church, being part of the kingdom of God, serving God here on earth and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what's under consideration when the Gospel went to the Gentiles. Because elect Gentiles out there that hadn't heard the Gospel yet were groaning under the guilt of their sins and did not know how to please God. And can you think of a name? A whole chapter about him. And then he's referred to in chapter 11. And he was referred to again in chapter 15 that you should have read last evening. Can you give me a name? He's an Italian. Cornelius was one of those elect Gentiles But what he needed to hear something without giving myself away, he needed to know the war was over. For those of you that read the preparatory email, he needed to know the war was over. And so the gospel went to him because the Jews didn't want to hear it. Peter was one of those servants described in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10 that we started with this morning. That Jesus said, the Jews don't want it. I have my fatlings killed. Go out into the highways, and whoever you find, tell them to come. And furnish this wedding with guests. And so Peter, Peter didn't want to go. Do you remember that? Right. Peter had to be uh, nudged off the rooftop where he was waiting for lunch to be served with that sheet that came down with all those unclean animals in it. And guess what one of those unclean animals was named? Fill in the blank with your name. Right. You are one of those unclean animals, and so Peter came down and went off to Cornelius and said, "You know what I'm doing right now shouldn't be done, but I'm here because an angel told me to come here, and I had a vision that told me, and I perceive that in that that God is no respecter of persons, but in all nations, he that feareth Him is accepted with Him." Amen. And he preached the gospel to Cornelius. That's the book of Acts. Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, and they did what Jesus described in those two parables that I've given you the last two Lord's Day. Acts chapter 15, that counsel that is stuck right in the middle is because it was overwhelming their minds, especially Pharisees that had been converted, that these Gentiles needed to keep some semblance of the law, like circumcision at least, in order to be saved. And what a conclusion James brought that counsel to in Acts 15. These are the things that we want to rejoice in and be thankful for. We want to be humble. We're like Cornelius, except we're removed by thousands of miles and removed by thousands of years from that apostolic age. But God, God has gospel to us because in the beginning of the gospel, the Jews rejected it, so it was redirected to us Gentiles. And it went west, young man. It went west. It climbed the boot of Italy, and it went into Spain, and it went through Europe, and Paul said, I have preached in the regions of Illyricum, that's Yugoslavia, and it came into the British Isles, and it came from the British Isles in the North American continent. Right. And the gospel pervaded the British Isles, and the the sun never sets on the British Empire, and it, it went around the world because of the English. And it came to North America, and we are blessed to have heard the gospel. And we should be so thankful for Paul giving us this chapter. And it's not to speculate about some future Jewish fable. It's to learn things to be thankful for and to see if we have the heart of Paul of having a desire for the conversion of God's elect. Right. To be humbled by it and to fear these privileges that have been given to us that can be taken away. Oh Lord, thank you for all these things. Salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Eternal life isn't the issue. This is the practical phase of salvation. This is what Paul wanted for the Jews in Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. But you've got to believe in order for Christ to be the end of the law in your mind of how you can be righteous before God. How can you believe unless you hear it? How can you hear it unless preachers preach it? How can preachers preach it unless God sends them? And that's what Romans 10 is about. And Cornelius the Gentile couldn't hear it unless preachers brought it to him and Peter brought it to him. We don't ever want to underestimate gospel salvation. We know that it has its place in the fourth phase of salvation and you should most definitely know exactly what I'm saying by those terms because that is what God has given us to help us rightly divide the New Testament. You should know exactly what I'm referring to. And I don't have time today to retrace it. Of course, in the outline, there are links there to take you to the five phases of salvation, but we don't want to underestimate it. Without hearing about the resurrection from the dead and living this life only for Jesus Christ, a life of self-denial with no reward, we are of all men most miserable. But with eternal heaven held out for us and a resurrection even of our bodies so that we body, soul, and spirit will enjoy the presence of God and all the riches of the universe forever, that makes life more than worthwhile. That makes death desirable. So that the Apostle Paul could say it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. Well, that's because this gospel came to him. And he knows the war is over. Oh, that's the second time I've mentioned that. Let's be careful. We want a little surprise in the second assembly. What in the world did the pastor send out a link to a chronology of Japanese soldier holdouts after World War II? Is he gone loco? Oh, no. Do you know there's 1.1 billion Catholics that don't know the war is over? Thank you, Lord, for sending some ambassadors to tell us that the war is over. Oh, there's so much more that could be said about gospel salvation. The privileges are so great. The Bible describes it as a feast. That parable in Matthew 22 described it as a king's son's wedding. Now, you know that would have been the best. The very best that you could ever have eaten and ever enjoyed in the way of entertainments would have been provided by a king for his son's wedding. That's the gospel. It's called a feast of fat things in the Bible. You know, when you get a good steak, it's a a steak marbled with fat. It's the feast of fat things. That's the Bible's definition and explanation and description and metaphorical comparison of gospel privileges that we have. And today, you should be feeling that way about it. In, in, In the privilege of singing and having that singing sanctified and made acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. That our worship is made acceptable by a high priest the world had never seen until 2,000 years ago. And we get to know about that and that we Gentiles, in a simple little assembly like this, in a simple little building like this, can sing, pray, preach, read, hear, and fellowship together and even eat. And the Lord is pleased with the whole thing because Jesus Christ makes it pleasing because he's our high priest. Amen. I've had a wonderful week this past week doing what god called me to do and doing what i delight in doing with great peace in my life so i was able to accomplish a great deal i'm very thankful for being able to share these things with others around the world and you have made that possible and i want us to participate in that together with great joy because of the joy that we have enjoyed we want to share it with others it was a burden to the apostle paul couldn't the apostle paul have been thankful for the thousands that were converted by his ministry it was not enough Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I want to make sure that you get that from this Romans chapter 11. Right. For to provoke them to jealousy. There is so much in Romans eleven, 11. I've told you that it's the key verse. It is the key verse. Not only do you have to make a decision about the antecedent for those four pronouns, but look at what it says. Elect Israel will be somewhat blinded and somewhat fall. But the reason for the fall is the gospel salvation of Gentiles and the gospel salvation of Gentiles is to in turn provoke those that were blinded and stumbled and somewhat fell that they would be saved at the end of this transitional period. All in one verse. Do you see it all there? Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. Why? Well, for the Gentiles to know the message of their salvation, why else? For to provoke them to jealousy. Whom to jealousy? Back to the Jews that were blind to the gospel and were seeing thousands of Gentiles being converted and coming into the worship of the Lord God Jehovah and using their scriptures saying the Messiah had come. This was a staggering event for an elect Jew to realize, what are Gentiles believing in the Lord Jehovah for? Why are they reading the scriptures? (laughs) And why do they have a better understanding of it than we do? And could the Gentiles help them out even a little bit more by there being large transfers of money across the Mediterranean from pagan Gentiles to the poor saints in the church at Jerusalem? And that was going on in other places. You know it was because of the exhortation. Okay, you say, I don't know that it was. Let me help you then. Chapter 15 of Romans. Romans 15. I believe I gave you this last Lord's Day, but let me give it to you again. I just want you to know that there were, there were some mutual things going on here so that there was an economic exchange being made and it was going to all be equalized in the end by the destruction of Jerusalem and by the grace of God. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. Those are two provinces of The nation of Greece. To make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. This is a multi-church collection. It hath pleased them verily. They have been excited to do this, and their debtors they are. These Gentiles in Greece are debtors to the Jews in Jerusalem. For, if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, that is the gospel, was sent out into the highways for the Gentiles that had been first sent to the Jews, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. This is what was going on in this generation. Now how many poor saints were there in Jerusalem after 70 AD? None. There was no poor anybody in Jerusalem. After 70 AD, it was leveled to the ground. A few remaining wild Jews went to Masada and held out for a couple of years till they committed suicide when the Romans surrounded them. But this is a transitional generation and it's glorious to think about it. The gospel taken from the Jews, some of those elect Jews blinded, stumbling over Jesus Christ like Paul had, Paul could appreciate them more than anyone. That's why there is so much fervor in him for them, sent to the Gentiles like Cornelius and others. It happened very fast. It happened at the end of the 70 weeks. Remember Jesus died in the middle of the 70 weeks last, from last Sunday? And there were a few years where it was all Jewish. And then it went to the Gentiles. There was so much persecution going on in Jerusalem that Acts chapter 8 tells us that they had to flee Jerusalem. And it tells us in Acts chapter 8 about a man. He was a deacon who was also an evangelist. He went and preached the gospel in Samaria. And many believed. Right. Then the apostle, you know, he wasn't an apostle, so the apostles had to come down and lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Ghost. Then he went out in the desert and found the Ethiopian eunuch. And he went, out, he went on his way to Candace, of the queen of the Ethiopians. And then we get Acts chapter 10. It's just glorious. Right. As the gospels diverted, redirected to the Gentiles. For to provoke them to jealousy. The haughtiness of Israel had no limit. They assumed they were the only ones that were God's children and that by birth. Positive jealousy that the apostle describes in this 11th verse can only happen to an elect child of God. Negative jealousy or angry jealousy is not going to lead a person to repentance. It's going to lead a person to murder. And so when you go through the book of Acts, there's some murdering going on. And yet the apostle is talking about some of these Jews that are, have animosity toward the gospel. It's called enemies of the gospel in verse 28, but they're elect, but they're called enemies of the gospel. Because they do not believe this message about Jesus of Nazareth. They consider him an imposter and these fishermen from Galilee as being false teachers and heretics. The way that they call heresy. The Apostle Paul said, so serve I the God of my fathers. Thank you, Lord. Oh, there's, there's so much more things that could be said with that 11th verse. I hope you see the 11th verse. Have the elect stumbled that the elect should fall from God's plan for their everlasting life? God forbid. But rather, the elect have fallen temporarily and partially so that gospel salvation will be preached to the Gentiles who will believe it and respond to it. And by that influx of Gentiles, these stumbling Jews are going to be provoked to jealousy so they're converted in the end. That's Romans 11.11. And with that, you should want to shout with the exclamation points in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Who would have ever guessed any of that? Right. But this is history. His story of what He's done in the nations of the earth. And it includes us on the positive side, on the vessels of mercy side. On the vessels of honor side, praise His glorious name. Amen. That's through verse 11. Verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world. The fall of them. This is the fall that I've already described. These elect Israelites had fallen from recognizing and believing the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ. Paul had been one of them. They hadn't fallen from eternal life. They were just stumbling over Christ. Paul is pursuing the Gentiles in this passage, for mercy and affection for these Israelites, thus the if, if in 12, if in 14, if in 15. Verse 12, for if, the fall of them, if, let's follow this if all the way through, for if, the fall of these elect Jews, be the riches of you Gentiles, and the diminishing of these elect Jews, the riches of you Gentiles, how much more, these elect Jews fullness, of them being converted again, If there's so much benefit for you by their unbelief, what kind of benefit is there going to be by their belief? As they're converted and they join with you in the worship of God, instead of the elect family of God being split with Gentile half believing and a a large part of the Jewish half not believing, what's going to happen when the fullness of those elect Jews are brought back into the church? Then it's going to be happy time everywhere. And what great event ended all the temptation of temple worship and showed that Jesus Christ was king? The destruction of Jerusalem. I will never get over in my lifetime how in the world people can read the Bible and claim to be Christians and not know about the destruction of Jerusalem. It is one of the most important events in the New Testament. It is referred to over and over in both Testaments, many times in the Old. We showed you, what, Daniel chapter 9? Until the end of the war, there shall be desolations. Remember the last couple of verses of Daniel 9? A prince is going to come and bring an army, and it's going to be like a flood. They're just going to overwhelm the place. That's, that's military language. But how about Matthew 21? He'll miserably destroy those murderers and burn up their city in 21 and in 22 in verse 7. It's everywhere we turn. Peter on the day of Pentecost, you know, he preaches that wonderful, wonderful sermon where he exalts the Lord Jesus Christ at the end. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, Lord and Christ. But then it says in a verse, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. This perverse generation that has crucified the Lord, and you have all those prophecies, Peter, I'm sure, explained to them, prophecies all the way back in Deuteronomy about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And yet the average Christian does not even know a single thing about that event. Right. Has never even heard of it. Then there was no temple, there was no priests, there was no sacrifices... There was no reading of the law in the temple at Jerusalem. It was all gone. And the gospel had been fully redirected to Gentiles. It was the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. And when the fullness of the Gentiles was brought in, the blindness was lifted off of Israel because it was only to be until the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. There has not been two... We'll get to that in a moment. I, I want to thank the Lord God of heaven For showing us things that we would not know without His mercy and grace, whenever you read your Bible, and whenever you think that I might be reading mine, please pray one nineteen eighteen for me from the Book of Psalms. Psalm one nineteen and verse eighteen: Open Thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of Thy law. Amen. Because some of these little tidbits He's given us are like keys, and they unlock ten, twenty a hundred or two hundred passages of Scripture. They're keys. Jesus accused the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership of His day of hiding the key of knowledge from the Jews so that they could not understand or enter into the kingdom. But He has not hid very many keys from us that we know of. If He's got some more keys for us, we'll thank Him for every one. And if some of those keys mean when we open the door, it says... This that you have been preaching stinks. We'll thank the Lord for it. Amen. And if you don't have that attitude with me, we are in serious trouble. Right. Right. If he tells me something stinks, I'm going to tell you it stinks and we are going to throw it in the trash right. because we only want what is pure doctrine. But pray with me and for me. Yep. Good. I love what the Lord's given us, but I'm not content yet. I'm thankful. Verse 12, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world. Oh, brethren, do you know that there are verses I could... Let's turn to a couple. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, while you hold your place at Romans 11. Oh, Lord, be merciful to us. We're so thankful for these riches. I know I gave this to you last Lord's Day, but I just I want you to feast on it. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world... What's the greatest event that's ever happened in Gentile history? The gospel was directed to them. Period. It's not some building. It's not some invention. It's not some constitution. Whether it's the French constitution or the American constitution. It's not the Magna Carta of England. It's the gospel. Amen. The riches of the Gentiles. And most of the Gentiles don't even participate in it. We have been... S- sorted out by the Lord and chosen by the Lord. We are His beloved. We should be so thankful. And I want you to delight in words like that. I don't want you to read Romans 11 looking for Jewish speculations. I don't want you to look at Romans chapter 11 as just finding out a category of unconverted elect. We'll cover all those points as we get to them. But I want you to rejoice in what the chapter is truly about. That salvation is come to the Gentiles. And it's our riches. They were diminished. That means to be made poor. That means to be impoverished. The elect Jews were impoverished so that you could be rich. Ephesians 3 8, Unto me, the apostle said, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The war is over. There is no circumcision. There is no sacrifice. The war is over. That's Ephesians 3.8. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Notice it was about Gentiles. Paul getting to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Paul loved his special office. If you can't tell from reading Ephesians chapter 3. And from reading Romans eleven thirteen, Paul loved the special office God gave him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul's preaching again, writing again, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Amen. whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And these are Gentiles. The glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, in the middle of verse 27 of Colossians 1, and these are just two of many places that could be mentioned. Moses, when he was in Egypt, did not consider the pleasure and the riches of Egypt something to distract him, but he would rather suffer with the people of God because he saw the riches that were in Christ. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 11. The Lord Jesus Christ Expostulated with the church that was at Laodicea about the true riches. He wrote to that church in Revelation chapter 3 and said, you say that you're rich. We can imagine big building, big congregation, all making a lot of money, whatever. You think you're rich. Maybe they had a great praise band or whatever they had going on at Laodicea. He said, but I have the true riches. You're poor. You're naked. You're blind. Because the true riches are Gentiles believing and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of David, because that's their citizenship where they're worshiping and glorifying their king and adoring their king who has saved them and who is going to vanquish all their enemies. And our enemies are not Philistines and Hittites, but death and hell and sin. Praise His glorious name. This is preaching the mystery of Jesus Christ to Gentiles. The diminishing of them in verse 13, in verse 12. The diminishing of them is the riches of the Gentiles. Losing the gospel and losing the kingdom and losing your love for Christ is to be diminished. Let me put it to you this way. Did God once feed His church of the Old Testament with quail? Did He give them their heart's desire? But He sent leanness into their... Leanness. A lean cut of meat is not a good cut of meat. Thank you, brother. (laughs) He sent leanness into their souls, which souls should have been fat. That's his judgment. When you're lean and you're dry and you're wondering, why don't I love Jesus Christ more? Why am I not more excited? Why does the pastor seem like he's loco? Why do other church members seem like they're nuts about Jesus and I'm not? You have leanness in your soul. Right. And it should be fat. Because it's called the fatness and it's called the riches that were sent to the Gentiles, brethren. We don't want that. I'd rather, wouldn't, do you all agree with me that it would be better for us to all be poor in the things of this world and rich in faith and rich in soul? Amen. To have a lean menu on our table? but fat, fair in our spirits. Let's keep that priority every day. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, that is, if these elect them, as the elect Israelites have stumbled, that has resulted in the world, meaning the Gentiles, getting the riches of the gospel. And it's stated again, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, and by comparing those two clauses as I showed you last Lord's Day, you have a definition for the word world that is Gentiles only, exclusive of the Jews, and it's a helpful little reference to have for a, one of the Lord's definitions of the word world. How much more their fullness. How much more their fullness. How much more exciting will it be if those elect Israelites were to be converted? If they've been diminished. If they've been impoverished. And all of a sudden they're believing the gospel and they're understanding it as thoroughly as the Gentiles and the two of them are worshiping together, what a great thing it would be. Paul described a limited possibility of saving some of them by his own labors. Verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. In verse 15 he describes their their conversion as being life from the dead which is what how it's described for us Gentiles as well. In James chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20, when we convert a soul from the error of his way, it's like saving a soul from death and hiding a multitude of sins. Look at verses 23 and 24. If they abide not still in unbelief, they shall be grafted in again, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 23. These are the same ones broken off, going to be grafted back in. It's temporary, it's generational. And he goes on to describe that further in verse 34 and verses 30 and 32, which I've already mentioned to you. It's that the Gentiles should be having mercy toward them because God intends to have mercy toward these presently unbelieving elect Israelites. While you're holding your place there, look at Second Corinthians 3. I want you to know that the apostle mentioned this conversion in another place as well. There is nothing in the Bible about some great revival of the Jewish nation at the end of time, 2,000 years removed from this generation. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Amen. People will make it up from Romans chapter 11. They'll make it up from all kinds of places. And if you ever start to wonder, could they possibly be right and could we possibly be wrong? Then just go back to Daniel chapter 9, the four verses that I introduced to you last Sunday, and look at the outline that's on the internet since Monday, and realize that the rest of the Christian world for the most listen, those that hold with us are less than one percent. On Daniel nine, twenty four through twenty seven, the rest of the Christian world makes ending the covenant in the midst of the week a covenant between Antichrist and the Jews in Israel, who he has built a temple for, and they have reinstituted animal sacrifices. And in the middle of the seven-week tribulation, he gets irritated with the Jews and cuts off their sacrificing. So what is for the description of Christ? Ending animal sacrifices for sin is transferred to the devil and his Antichrist. The covenant is not the covenant of the blood of the Lord Jesus. The covenant is a covenant between Antichrist and the Jews. On and on it goes in those four verses. And when you realize that, you say, listen, they aren't capable of believing anything. Remember what I've tried to teach you about baptism. If 95% of the world's so-called Christians can't figure out baptism, what can they figure out? Right. Listen, they can't even figure out in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25 whose decree started the 490-year prophecy. If there's one man that God raised up and called by name before he was ever born and gave him the position and the role to declare that Jerusalem should be rebuilt, do you know his name? It's in Isaiah 45. It's Cyrus. And they all go to the 20th year of Artaxerxes. One sentence. Because they have chosen to honor the chronology of the heathen and pagan astrologer Claudius Ptolemy of Alexandria, Egypt of the 2nd century AD rather than the Word of God. And a new document is coming to our website to let you survey that information. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. That's what we try to do in this church because we have such hope in the gospel and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face when he came down from Mount Sinai and his face was shining like an angels that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that, which is abolished. They couldn't look at Moses and they couldn't figure out the purpose of the law, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old Testament. They can't see that it was fulfilled even where there were timed prophecies Which veil is done away in Christ when they believe in Jesus Christ? The veil is lifted, and they understand everything. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And Paul thought, Paul was convinced, that by his use of means, he could get some of those elect Israelites converted during his lifetime. And when it would turn to the Lord, the veil would be lifted, and they would see. Do you know what it would be like to be a Jew and all of a sudden see Isaiah 53, Isaiah 7, about a virgin giving birth, about Isaiah 9, 6, he shall be called the mighty God, about Psalm 110, about Psalm 22, about Psalm 2, about Psalm 45, and all those passages of Scripture, all of a sudden being fulfilled because the veil was lifted? You want to talk about their fullness? Do you know how exciting that would have been? Then Gentiles and Jews, enemies by nature, a wall of partition between them put up by God for 1500 years, that wall down and they're embracing and they're communing together and they're singing and celebrating together. Amen. How much more their fullness? When does this fullness, when, when are they going to be full? Well, I hope you can already see the Apostle Paul thought he could do it and he wasn't going to even make it to 70 AD. He was going to get some of them. The timing issues of this chapter are fascinating since most expositors and preachers want to just rush off 2,000 years. And the fullness is some generation 2,000 years from now all of a sudden being converted. A generation of Jews 2,000 years removed from all of this being converted. How would that give the Romans excitement? I have 20 points. This is no pi... Ah, Lord... We understand Paul's words here to be generational for that great time of reformation. Because as soon as the gospel was redirected, the verses that I've already explained to you have no purpose anymore. 11.11 has no more purpose. As soon as the gospel is redirected. As soon as it's fully Gentile, there's no purpose. That's why in verse 25 it says that blindness in part has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. When was the fullness of the Gentiles in? Around 70 A.D. The gospel had gone fully to them. Then there wasn't a Jerusalem. There wasn't a temple worship. It was they were all scattered abroad throughout the nations. 97,000 of them were taken out of Judea and put in the salt mines of Egypt. According to the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is no future pie-in-the-sky Jewish fable, for Paul said he himself could save some of them by himself. Futuristic speculations of a last-day Jewish revival wouldn't have moved the Roman saints whatsoever. That wouldn't have been a thing to them. Right. How would that have been of any profit to them? The implication is the benefit of Jewish conversions to the generation addressed in the book of Romans. The fullness of the Gentiles in verse 25 is not about time, but about the redirection of the gospel. It's not the same as the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, which is a a phrase out of Luke 21, verse 24. That's about time. This is about diminishing and increasing. Poor, rich, unconverted, converted. It's a qualitative measure primarily of them being unconverted and them being converted, the blindness coming upon them, the blindness being lifted. The time of the Gentiles in Luke 21 is about a time, and it's the it's the whole age that we live in, and it's going to last until the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time. Jerusalem's going to be trodden down of Gentiles. And if someone says, well, it hasn't been trodden down of Gentiles since 1948, oh, yes, it has. They can't do a thing without Gentile help. And Gentiles make the decisions about where they're going to draw their boundaries and everything else pertaining to that nation. Because if you think something has happened, would you please show me in the history of of Israel in the Middle East what has happened in the 65 years since 1948? Have any of them been converted? None. They're just as hard to the gospel as they've ever been. Nothing's happened. 65 years now removed. See, back when I was a little boy at 57, 1950, you're not a little boy when you're 57 but you are a little boy when you were born in 57, and it's still 57, or then in 60 or 65, you would hear all these things about Israel got a nation started in 1948. In the next 40 years, big things are going to happen. You know, you heard all about that until, of course, 1987, and then you never heard about it again because people who lie for a living don't like to admit that they lied because then their living is taken away. I'm going to tell you what Jesus Christ has to say about those people. Please, Revelation three nine, And I'm not anti-Semitic because the Jews today aren't even Semites. There's a high probability that the Jews today aren't even Semites but are Gentiles because they call themselves Ashkenazi Jews. Why don't you look up Ashkenaz in the Bible and why don't you go read a few Jewish encyclopedias about Ashkenaz and about the Khazars of the Middle East? I wouldn't know it if it wasn't for Jewish encyclopedias. I'm just going to give you the words of the Lord Jesus Christ instead. Revelation 3.9 Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not there's only one group of people that have ever worshipped in synagogues. And there's only one group of people that ever wanted to be called Jews, really, that worshipped in synagogues. And so Jesus is addressing them. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That's where we stand. That middle wall of partition is broken down. The Jews are no longer God's preeminent people. He's made of two nations, one. And it's only the elect in both that really matter to him at all anyway. After the gospel was redirected, which took place by 70 AD, there was no further need of Jewish blindness. Explained in this chapter is God's sovereign design for Gentile evangelism. Once the gospel was redirected, there was no need for Jewish blindness. Why would he keep a group of unconverted elect Jews running around for 2,000 years when the gospel was already directed when he said the reason for their blindness was to get the gospel redirected? The destruction of Jerusalem finished that redirection of the gospel. How could Jews converting 2,000 years later fulfill this recovery of Jews blind in Paul's day? How did Jewish blindness help conversion of Gentiles other than that one generation? For after 70 A.D., the kingdom was nearly all Gentile and has remained so for 2,000 years. Let me put it in other words. How could or how did Jewish blindness assist your conversion to Jesus Christ in 1985? Are you getting the point? If we read the passage... And look at what is told us for the purpose of this blinding and the duration of the blinding in order for the gospel to be redirected to Gentiles. How did Gentile conversions cause Jewish jealousy that did not take effect for 2,000 years? 11 said, verse 11 says that this blindness has come upon Israel for salvation, gospel salvation, to go to the Gentiles in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Well now, if this whole passage belongs 2,000 years out in the future, how has the conversion of all the Gentiles under the ministry of the Apostle Paul not taken effect for 70 generations until 2000? Or in other words, how many Jews were affected and how were they affected by your belief of the gospel in 1985? How could one generation of elect Jews converting 2,000 years later be called fullness of that nation after 70-plus generations of them being blind and hating the gospel? That is so disproportionate, it tells us that the people proposing it are liars. Paul indicates a present tense concern about the whole matter from the first verse to the 32nd verse. The whole chapter is about the present time. When Paul starts out this chapter, he said, I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid! He's going to save them all in 2,000 years. No, God forbid! For I also am an Israelite. Paul's pointing to that present generation. Look! No! God hasn't cast away His people. The evidence of God not casting away His people is not something 2,000 years away. Look at it! I'm one. Verse five. Even so then at this present time. And it just goes that way through the whole thing. Look at, look at verses 30 through 32. For as ye in times past have not believed God, like Cornelius, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now. Notice that little, if you highlight in your Bible at all, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtained mercy. There's a now in verse 30. There's a now in verse 31 because it's now that the Apostle is concerned with. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 11, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the Apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. I am addressing you Gentiles, telling you what is taking place, that you would get as excited about me as their fullness coming in. He's already explained. Do you remember how he started off Romans 9? Those five verses? I have continual sorrow in my heart. Do you remember? As he read off the pedigree of elect Jews, the, the privileges that they had, and then 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God. And so he sticks that verse right in here. And trust me, I've, I've labored over this verse, Paul. Why are you trying to convince us of your ministry in the middle of this passage? Now, I know there's places where he's defending his integrity as apostle, like 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 against the Corinthians who despised him. But why is it stuck in right here? Because he wants you to know that God chose him to speak to you and to teach you. And he is fulfilling his office right now by explaining to you the manifold wisdom of God in temporary blinding some elect Israelites that you would care for them the way he did. And he goes right on again in verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. When they hear that I am the apostle of the Gentiles and they see the great influx of Gentiles under my ministry, together we are provoking them to emulation. You by believing the gospel, me by preaching it to you instead of to them. Remember what happened when Paul would be in a speech and he would mention that word that starts with G that Jews don't like to hear? As soon as he would say Gentiles, even in the Hebrew tongue, what would they do? throw dirt in the air, and stop up their ears and try to kill them. Right. Now that's the angry result of jealousy. And wherever that was existing, there were others that were moved to a positive jealousy. I want to look into these things. Did you hear what he said? Because the apostle said that that was happening, and right. he expected it to happen because he was hoping to save some of them by any means. In verse 14. If by any means I might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, those are Jews, after the flesh, that's part of national Israel, they're elect, he might save some of them, not into the book of life, but into gospel salvation, into conversion, into kingdom and church privileges. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, This casting away of them. I thought he said in verse 1, Hath God cast away His people? God forbid. He hasn't cast them away from eternal life. But has He cast them away from gospel privileges temporarily and partially? Because we're, we're just repeating verse 12. We're, if I hope you can see that. He, Paul's repeating it. He's not being redundant. He's trying to get a point across to us about something that's pretty exciting. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, if God putting them aside for a short period of time in order for you Gentiles to be reconciled to Him, and this is the ministry of reconciliation, this is not Jesus actually dying on the cross and reconciling them legally to God. This is ministers coming and telling them the war is over. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? but life from the dead. Amen. How, how exciting was it to the prodigal's father? What, what, did he, what did he say? What did he want killed? The, the scrangy the range-fed chickens? <laughs> Sorry. Just have, I just stick with the Bible. Right, right. I think if you were to offer the Lord a meal, he would like a fatted calf that's been stalled for a while rather than a range-fed chicken. Right. Sorry. He wants something that tastes good. What would the father of the prodigal do? <coughs> Kill the fatted calf. Amen. Bring forth a robe. Put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. Right. Right. Because he said, this my son was yeah, dead. dead and is now alive. Is now alive. And what did Paul say about seeing these Jews converted? They were dead and now they're alive. Do you know what trouble you used to give me? Can you can you imagine the Apostle Paul sitting at Starbucks with one of these converted Jews? Do you know how much trouble you used to give me? And now you love it. I know, brother. Isn't it wonderful to know the fulfillment of our Old Testament prophecies? Life from the dead. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? What are the lessons we're supposed to learn? Let me repeat myself. Humility. Verse 18. Boast not against the branches. Verse 25. I would not have you to be wise in your own conceits. Now remember a transitional generation where there had been great enmity against the Jews. They had caused the Roman Empire great problems because as that nation has always been known for in the annals of scriptural history, they always caused problems. Sandballot and the other, and Tobiah and the other enemies of the regathered Jews had no problem sending letters back to the Persian kings saying, if you'll check the records, you'll find out that these people have given problems to kings for a long time. Because it was true. There was, there was animosity between, there was enmity. But it was slain by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were brought together. It was life from the dead. We want to be humble as Gentiles. That generation would have had a difficult time with being humble because as soon as you were converted to the gospel, who killed Jesus of Nazareth? The Jews. Who killed the apostles? Why is your apostle Paul in prison in Rome? Because the Romans wanted to put him there? No, because the Jews were trying to kill him and he appealed to Caesar to save his life from them. Do you know the antagonism there could have been? So the Apostle is teaching humility for those Gentiles. Don't boast against the branches because it's the root of that tree bearing you. You're not bearing it. Do you follow me? I want you to understand this chapter and what I believe the Lord's teaching us throughout it. And then to fear that if God could cut off the natural branches, he could certainly cut off some of these Gentiles that were not the natural branches. Evangelism, that we would have the same concern for these unconverted elect that the Apostle Paul did, that we would be thankful because we are bound to give thanks always to God. Amen. For you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, that the Lord would pull off a transaction like this and save us from such delusion. You know, we've been saved not only from the Jewish delusion, the blindness that he sent upon the Jews, but that passage that I've referred to now twice, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, that's a strong delusion sent to Roman Catholics. We've been saved from that. We've been saved saved and saved. We are so blessed. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.